Well, good morning, all. How are we all doing? Good, good, good. It's a bit of a weird kind of setup here because I have to kind of, you know, if I was a pigeon, I'd have like eyes on the side of my head so I could like look in all directions around me, but I have to kind of stare around. So sorry if I kind of maybe ignore a little bit more of the people on the side, not because I don't love you, uh, more that I don't have the capabilities of a, of a pigeon to look all around my head. But um, it is wonderful to see you here today. Uh, we are in the book of Mark, so if you've got your Bibles, uh, I'd love you to turn to the book of Mark. Uh, we've been going through this book for the last year or so, uh, looking at the life of Jesus. And it's one of the biggest questions we can always ask ourselves is, who is Jesus? We've sung about him. You might hear about him. Uh, people might talk about him. But do you know uh, the very person of who Jesus is and who he claims to be? And uh, going through this portion, we've, we've arrived at the final week of his life. In Mark 12, we know that Jesus has already entered Jerusalem. He's, uh, we're actually not, we're nearer Christmas than we are Easter, but if we were near Easter, it would be kind of around that time. It would be the Tuesday before uh, Jesus went to the cross. And that's where we find ourselves in our passage this morning. So we're looking at Mark 12, verses 18 to 27. And this passage really, which I'm going to read to you in a second, is is a series of events that have happened in Jesus' life. It's all happening on one day of Jesus' life. Every religious group in Jerusalem has kind of come to Jesus in the temple and has tried to trick him, tried to discredit him, has tried to uh, put forward different arguments to try and ridicule who Jesus Christ claims to be. And I'm not sure if you've ever been in that situation where you, maybe as a Christian, or someone who trusts in Jesus, have ever been in a situation where you've come across opposition where, um, you know, maybe you're in school right now and you're the only Christian in your class and someone, you've gone to the RE lesson and people have said, oh, how can you believe in God? How can you believe there is somebody could rise from the dead? How can you believe that uh, there is life after this, this thing? Don't we trust science? All these different things that we face these days, maybe we're facing them in our lives right now. And maybe half-term for you is a bit of a relief uh, off from school from that. But um, I don't know about you, but, you know, in life, we do face opposition. And I want today to, to encourage you not to be afraid, not to be intimidated, um, and not to be defensive either, because what we have is a living hope in Christ. And today, I want to encourage you through this passage of what, how Jesus um, speaks, both in wisdom, in authority but also in gracious love to those who want to accuse him. And I pray that would encourage you this morning because so often in life we will face times like that where we have to stand up for something that we believe in. So why don't we pray? Why don't we just ask God to illuminate his word before we read it and that his Holy Spirit would come and fill our minds and our hearts this morning. So Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for sending Jesus to us that we may know life and life to its full. Would you show us by the power of your Holy Spirit what your word wants to show us this morning in Jesus' name? Amen. So why don't you turn to, to Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 18, and I'm going to read through to verse 27. And it's titled, this passage is titled, The Sadducees Ask About the Resurrection. And the Sadducees came to Jesus, and they say, who, and the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection, and they ask him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. 
Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took, hers, took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall she be? For the seventh had her as a wife. Verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. There's a lot in that passage, isn't there? There's a lot in that passage. If you know me, um, I like uh, cryptic puzzles. I'm a bit of a, a sucker for Sudoku. Um, I'm a bit of a sucker for kind of Mensa puzzles. I got one of those last Christmas, and I basically abandoned my family for a few days and sat in, a, in, a, in my room just with my pencil trying to figure out these Mensa quizzing puzzles. Um, I'm just like that. I'm geared, wired that way. And uh, some puzzles are fun, aren't they? Some riddles are enjoyable because they test your mental capacity and they kind of, there is an answer. But in this passage, we're not talking about a riddle that's there for fun. We've got a group of people called the Sadducees who are intentionally trying to create a fictional and theoretical and probably would never ever happen scenario to try and trick Jesus and to discredit him and to show him to be somebody who has no authority and is just, you know, just like any other guy without any wisdom. But who are the Sadducees? Let's just have to take a step back, and before we get into the idea and understand kind of the riddle and the puzzle, their intention is really to, to discredit Jesus, because Jesus has come into their, their territory. He's come into the temple, and the Sadducees were the group of Jewish leaders and Jewish religious leaders who basically were the, um, you could say, the aristocrats of society. They were the elite few who ruled and reigned in the temple, uh, they had political interests. They were siding with Rome. They were not very popular with the people at the time, but because of their standing in society and because of their positions, they, they did have uh, authority over those who, who came into the temple courts. Uh, Capias, uh, who was the uh, chief priest at the time, you'll read about him later in the Gospels. He was actually the chief priest, so the leader of uh, the Jewish Sanhedrin, uh, and he was a Sadducee. So these are people who took pride in their position. They were, take, they were people who were intellectual, they were well-educated probably, rich, and they had um, a very strong but very narrow belief in only the five books, first five books of the Bible or the Torah at the time, and the Pentateuchs. So that would be Genesis, Exodus, uh, give me a moment, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. So they would be the people who would basically say, that is only my authority I'm only going to read those five things and believe. Um, I'm, not going to, I'm not like the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were much more into understanding the, the whole of Scripture, but also oral tradition and handing down of, of sayings and teachings and interpretations. But the Sadducees took a very literal and narrow view of the Jewish writings, only the five first books of the Bibles. So that's pretty much why you can kind of understand 
from their point of view, why they didn't believe in the resurrection. Because I don't believe the word resurrection is in the first five books of the Bible. Um, so yeah, they had a very narrow view of what life was. They believed that life was just now, here and now, the physical being. They believed in a vague spirituality of God, but they didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in angels or demons, because again, they weren't really mentioned very much in the Bible. And yeah, they found no desire really to increase their understanding of the truth. Because the questions they were asking Jesus actually things they didn't actually believe in in the first place. I don't know if you've ever encountered that, people who just want to ask questions just to stir up trouble or just want to you know, create an argument. They're not interested in growing deeper or having a dialogue or understanding. And that's really a great test, really, of our times, isn't it? With so much polarization in society, a lot of our current dialogue that's going on, whether that be on Twitter or on even presidential debates, um, are, are very much a very polarized view of things rather than a desire to learn and to grow uh, together and understand. And I think as Christians, when we think about opposition, often, I don't know about you, but my first reaction is to be defensive, not to say the wrong thing. It's to close my ears, try and, okay, I've got to think about this and think about my 10 points I'm going to do to crush this person or whatever. Um, you know, that's not where we need to be. We can look at Jesus and we can try and grasp something of what he does. He speaks for authority. And that's something I think the Sadducees don't realize, do they? That when they ask these, this riddle, they don't realize that they are standing in the presence of the ultimate authority. Not, they don't realize that they are standing in the one who has all wisdom, the creator of heaven and earth, who by his hand and his might created all things that they see. And um, let me just quickly go through, go through the riddle because I think it's worth kind of understanding a little bit about why it is a riddle. Um, so the, Phar- the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in afterlife. The Pharisees actually did. The Pharisees were the other kind of, maybe you could say, predominant uh, religious leading group in, at the time, uh, along with the Herodians. They already had their chance to try and discredit Jesus, and, and they failed in the previous uh, passage. Um, but they believed there was this tension between, is the resurrection real or not? And uh, Jesus does affirm that he believes in the resurrection, life after death. And in this particular passage, they're trying to create a, th- a theoretical idea or argument that if there is resurrection and uh, somebody's married and they get married and the person dies and they, uh, the Leverite marriage um, tradition in Jewish tradition was that if your sister-in-law's husband died, that you would take care of that widow by marrying her. Yeah, so the idea is that it's actually a very good thing to live right idea or the philosophy or the, the, the tradition is that you would choose to go and love and marry this widow to look after her so that her estate or that she belongs to would not leave, but actually you would protect her. And we see evidence of that in the Bible, in, in the book of Ruth, um, where Boaz uh, takes on, is the kingsman redeemer, and he goes and uh, follows this tradition and looks after Ruth and marries her. And we see that in working out in, 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 um, in, the, in the Old Testament. But the Sadducees are very keen in trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to say, come on, when you get to heaven, or whatever this heaven is, because they don't believe in heaven or afterlife, they, they believe that you're either one of two things. You either are married to seven guys, and that's pretty awkward when you get to heaven. Or you may be married to the first person, and all the rest were, I don't know, 
Who knows what they are? <laughs> or you're married to the last one. And you can see the conundrum. You can see what they're trying to do. If he answers one of these situations, obviously it's going to discredit Jesus because Jesus, you say you believe in the resurrection. How can you believe this? We're going to show you for who you are, a fake with no authority. But Jesus doesn't step down from that confrontation, does he? We see our Lord in Jesus Christ. He intentionally opens his argument with this. You are wrong. Wow. Have you ever been told that? <laughs> you are wrong. I would put an exclamation mark if I could. You are wrong. And Jesus answers them and, and addresses why they are wrong in two ways. Firstly, and this is even more damning, you don't know the scriptures. You have no idea what you're talking about. And secondly, you do not know the power of God. Now, let that sinking for you. Imagine if you are an aristocrat, um, if you are you know, the, the, the top of a society, you're the most educated, the wealthy, and this guy comes along and says, you're just wrong. You don't know your scriptures, even though you claim to know them and hold fast to them, and you don't know the power of God in your life. Who are you? And, you know, it's pretty damning. And this is Jesus' argument. Let me just take you through this. Firstly, they are wrong because Jesus claims that there is no marriage in the afterlife. There is no in the resurrection, there will be no marriage. And it says here in uh, verse 24, uh, 25, sorry, for when they rise, sorry, from verse 24, Jesus says to them, is not the reason you're wrong because you neither believe the scriptures nor the power of God, verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. Now, it's an interesting statement, isn't it? Because um, I'm married. Um, I love my wife. And it's, this, is, this is a little bit, when I first read it, it was a bit unnerving because for many of us, marriage is, you know, a really important thing. It's a, for all of us, it's a really important thing. In this church, we believe in marriage. But Jesus says here clearly and teaches that marriage is something for this life and it's not, it doesn't exist in the resurrection life. And secondly, we are to be like angels, and I'm thinking, when I think of angels, what do I think of? Firstly, metaphorically and, and imagery, like I look at kind of cutie-cheeked kind of babies with wings and red buttock cheeks. Um, what does, <laughs> is that what I'm going to be like in heaven? Um, cherubims, you know, softer touch, maybe dangerous at the same time, who knows? But let me just try and clarify what Jesus is trying to say here, because very much when he speaks about these things, we have to look not just at one poor scripture, part of scripture, but the whole kind of collectiveness of scripture. Uh, and let me quickly list a few things of what it means to be like an angel, not actually an angel. We're not going to be like an angel. We are going to be like angels. So firstly, the afterlife means that we will be eternal. We'll be immortal. That's why it's called everlasting life, I guess. Um, secondly, from the scripture, we, we learn that earthly relationships and family relationships will not be just a carryover to the next life. We really see that marriage is an institution and something that's here for us in this life, but doesn't carry forwards. Um, it will be different. Thirdly, um, we will be, as, like angels, we will be in the presence of God. And we look at revelations and we see how angels and created beings are, are worshiping before God, falling on their faces before the creator and the awesome one. And lastly, maybe one more thought is that our focus 
may not be on so much so on the earthly things, but our focus will be on the worship and honor and glory of Jesus. And that's, again, what we see in the book of Revelations when we read it. Let me just say a few things what this does not mean. When it says that there will be no marriage and we will be like angels, it does not mean that we will not know each other. It does not mean that we will, I will not know my wife. Uh, it does not mean that I will not know my children or you, uh, those of you in this church and in my relationship with other people who will be there as well. And it does not mean that we will be any less or at loss. And I really want to emphasize that because this really can unsettle us, especially if we are really happily married, we love our kids and everything like that. Let me just say to you clearly that I believe that our relationships will be even greater. Whatever greatness and wonderful things we experience right now in our marriage and our relationships, they will not be any less when we get to heaven. They will not be any less. They'll be greater. They will not probably be not exclusive. And I think that's something we have to be clear about from this passage, but they will, you will not get to heaven. And I don't think you'll be going, I wish I was married. You will have something greater to gaze upon. You are something more wonderful, more glorious, something that God has prepared for you that will captivate your heart and will increase your joy, not decrease it. And I just want to confirm that in you this morning, that if you are married, you will not lose what you have here. You will only gain. You will only gain. But it's clear that the resurrection life is not like what we have here. Let me just read from 1 Corinthians and just encourage you with this. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I don't know what heaven's going to be like, but all I can trust is the promise of God that it will be greater. It will be greater than what I experience in my marriage now. It will be greater than what I experience with my kids and all that I treasure so dearly right now will be greater. That's the first thing. Jesus says, there is no marriage. Therefore, your argument doesn't work because the lady cannot be married to seven people because there won't be any marriage in heaven. Does that kind of make sense? Secondly, Jesus answers their riddle, or their trap, you could say, let's call it a trap, from their source of authority. You notice that Jesus calls upon Moses, he doesn't he? He calls upon scriptures. He goes to Exodus 3, Exodus 3, 6, where this is the story where, he's, where, G, where God um, comes, he hears the cry of Israel, and he calls Moses to rescue his people from slavery, from the oppression of Egypt. And he meets Moses at the burning bush. Actually, we did this last week in the, in, in the kids' church, which was amazing. So it really ties in well. But what Jesus does, he, he takes the Pentateuch, he takes a passage from the five books which they believe is authority for them, and he uses that as authority to answer and to push back on their opposition and their riddles. And let me just um, read it. The logic is here that Jesus says this. He reads from um, Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. He says, I am, this is God speaking to Moses. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And he says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That's why they are wrong. Let me just take you through this now. So when God speaks to Moses, when God speaks to Moses at the burning bush, he says, I am the God of your forefathers. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were the, the patriarchs, those who claimed to be the start of Israel. And when Moses hears that, he hears that this is a God who is, was the God of his forefather Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And what he's clearly seeing there, and what Jesus is insinuating here, is that God declares to him not as he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say it in the past tense, but he claims to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now, still, present tense. And that's really interesting how Jesus uses that as authority because if God was the, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that means there is still a relationship with all three of them. Can you see that? It's like when we look at this, we're saying that they're not dead. They're actually still in relationship with God. Therefore, if God is still in a covenant promise with them, then he has, even though they've been dead physically for centuries before Moses, He's still there in a relationship with them, fulfilling his God-given promises to them. You see, the implication is this, and this is also for all of us. God is still faithful. He's still a promise-keeping God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's hope was not just in God for this life, not for their 90 years or whatever they lived, walking this earth. God, their faithfulness, their hope in God was not just for this life. It was for a life beyond what they lived on this earth. God is their God, and they believe that he would one day raise them from the dead. And that's really clear. We have, the, we have wonderful, you know, it's so amazing that we are in the New Testament. We get to read stuff that is written and commented on as our authority. If you read Hebrews 11, this kind of helps explain it so well what I'm trying to say. And this is speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of these guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this is Hebrews 11, verse 13, they all died in faith, but they hadn't received all the promises that God had given them. They'd seen them and greeted them from afar. So God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob inheritance, fame, um, generations that would, uh, and and, descendants that would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. Didn't we read that, don't we, in, in, in Genesis? But Abraham didn't see that come through, did he? He basically saw his, his family grow, but he never saw his, his, uh, his what you call it, his, his descendants as numerous as the number of the skies, a number of the stars in the skies. Neither did Isaac or Jacob. But yet, God is still going to fulfill that promise to them and show Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he is going to complete this thing. Their faith wasn't just in their lives in the temporary. Their faith was in their lives in the future. It says this again in Hebrews 11. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Their hope and our hope, as people who believe in God, believe in the faithfulness of Jesus, believe in the promise-keeping God, is that our hope is not just for our 70, 80, 90 years, however long we live on this earth. Our hope is in eternity. Our hope is in uh, a life that has been granted to us through the, uh, the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection. Our hope is not in a God who is of interested uh, in us just for a few brief years here, but ours is a God who will extend his faithfulness throughout eternity. And that is something to be glad in. Because if we live with this temporal view of just these 70, 80, whatever years we have, maybe more, maybe less, then our view is very, very small. Our view is very, very narrow. He is not the God of the dead, but he is of the living. And so it is for us that if we have placed our trust in Christ, 
Our hope is not just for this life. Our hope is for eternity in a promise-keeping, faithful God who has your resurrection and eternity stored up for you that can never be taken away. Faith in God through Jesus is not just for this life only. It is for eternity. And I pray that would encourage you, especially in times like this where everything seems so fragile. You can step out the door. You can step out the door um, catch some deadly virus. You, could, you don't have control over the days of your lives, but there is a God who does. There's a God who has provided us hope, not just for this life, but for the future, and that should then change how we live our lives day to day now. So that's the riddle. That's Jesus arguing from their scriptures, from their authority, that they are just wrong. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever met anyone who can just claim to be right all the time. Um, I can't even say that about my wife, unfortunately, but um, she might correct me. But no, it's, it's wonderful to know that we have a God who has such authority. We have a God who has such authority, not just over the physical realm, but over the spiritual realm as well. And it begs the question, doesn't it? It begs a question to us who have heard these verses, who have heard Jesus speaking, is what, where, what do we believe about the resurrection? And it's a big, 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 big question. You search on Google, and it's, I think it's one of the big top questions on Google search is, what happens when I die? And often we, I don't know about you, but we only often encounter these questions when we're in times of crisis, don't we? Um, some of us know uh, when we lose a loved one or somebody else has lost a loved one, we somehow connect with the frailty of our humanity and this life. And the questions like this is, what happens when I die? It's one of the greatest questions we could ever ponder. And I pray it would not lead you to reincarnation. It would not lead you to cessationism, which is just that you cease to exist. Just physical, poof, that's it. It's done. Nothing. I hope that would lead you and I urge you to seek out that question. And I pray that it would lead you to somewhere where there's something you know, eternity is burning in your heart. There must be something more than just this life. And the question for us as Christians, really, when we go out into our workplaces, our schools, and we claim to know there is more than this life, the question is, how can we be so sure? How can you and I stand tomorrow morning or whenever it is when we go back to school the week after and claim to believe in a Christ who has risen. Because this passage doesn't only just point backwards to Exodus, it also points forwards to the days that are coming for Jesus. Remember again that we're on a Tuesday, the last week of Jesus' life. In two days' time, Jesus knows that he's going to go to the cross. He knows he's on a path that is set out before him already. He knows the implications of him speaking against religious leaders. He knows the implication of that his time has come. He knows the implication that confronting these religious leaders is going to stir up their desire to destroy him. He knows that in the time to come that he's fueling the opposition that's going to come against him. And he does this for you and I. He does this for them. He does this for the world who without a savior have no hope. It's Tuesday. Two days later, Jesus is going to be falsely accused. He's going to be tried and found blameless, but yet sentenced because of a farcical um, uh, trial. 
On Tuesday morning, he's going to be sentenced to death and executed by crucifixion on the Roman cross. And even there on the cross, he speaks these amazing words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. On Friday afternoon at the sixth hour, the sins of the world are placed on the Savior. They're laid on Jesus, and Jesus declares with a loud voice, it is finished. And he dies and takes on the sin of the world for every one of us and even for those religious leaders. But that's not the end. Because on Sunday, on the third day, he rises from the dead. God, with authority and power, raises Christ from the dead, and the tomb is empty. And that is what his final answer to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, to the religious leaders, to everyone who would claim to have wisdom and authority over him, he would say, this is his final answer, the tomb is empty. He doesn't just teach about the resurrection. He is the resurrection. He is the resurrection and the life. And because of that, he has the final answer above every other authority that would claim authority in this world. I love what John read from Ephesians. He is the author. He is, I can't remember, the, so many amazing words. Go read it again. Those amazing words just speak of the wisdom and authority of Christ over this life, over eternity, over every power. He is the one whom we will place our trust in. And for us, what does that mean? How can we be so sure of our resurrection? It's because we have Christ who's gone ahead already. It's because he's done it already. He's demonstrated what the future will look like for us. That one day you and I, though we are frail and mortal now, if we put our trust in Jesus, if we put our hope in him, that God is faithful to you and I and will raise us just like he raised Christ from the dead. And that is why we can be sure, because we trust in Jesus. He is the firstborn of the resurrection and in Christ's teaching, he then demonstrates his power to raise not just himself, but to raise us from the dead. That is our hope, people. That is our hope, Christian. That if you place your hope in Christ, today you can walk out with a sense of power and authority that comes from Christ because he has already conquered sin, Satan, death, and has raised new life for you and for I. So how do we apply this in our lives right now? Just a few thoughts as we close our time. As you read Jesus, are you amazed at him? Are you amazed at his wisdom? Are you amazed at his authority, his supreme authority? I love that what John read. He said his supreme authority like no other. All the other religious leaders at the time have been silenced. And if his, he is supreme in authority and wisdom, would you place your trust in him? Would you seek him for that wisdom? Would you seek him for that authority to live powerfully in your life? Would you trust Jesus with everything that you have? Would you hang on his every words? Would you let his wisdom guard and guide your heart and rule over your agendas, over your emotions, over your decision-making? Because if he is wisdom personified, why would we not? Why would we not ask him to come and be our wisdom? In James, the book of James, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask, and God will give generously. Come, people of God. If you need to make a decision this morning, if you're thinking, is this right or wrong, come to Christ. He is the one 
who will guard and guide your hearts. Seek him with all your heart and lean not, on your, not only on your, not lean on your own understanding. I want to speak to you young guys as well, the fused guys, because I do love you guys a little bit more sometimes. <laughs> In school, you will face opposition. In school, you face discreditation. You may feel like the only guy or girl who's standing for Jesus. And I want you guys to know that you have authority in Christ. You have truth that has been planted in you from a young age. And God will pull out that truth by the power of the Holy Spirit and cause you to be a vessel for his truth in your schools, in your friendship groups. But I don't want you just to be people who just answer questions and try and ridicule people. I want you to be people who also serve with love. See how Christ not only answered the Pharisees, but he served them. See how he's not just answered the Sadducees, but he served them. He served them with love and grace, and he laid down his life even for them. So it should be for us that we will fall at Jesus' feet when we don't have the answers, but we will also fall at our feet and pray for our friends. Amen? Speak boldly for Christ, but also kneel your knees for your friends and ask for grace and mercy for them, that they would open, God would open their eyes and they would see who Christ truly is. For the married, and this applies for me, marriage is temporary. We have to get our heads around that. And that means we don't waste our marriages. We have a few years in this life. In the light of eternity, in the light of eternity, we have a few bereavements. How will you use your marriage? How will you leverage your relationships with each other? Will you waste it in sin? Or will you redeem it? And will you use it to magnify and to reflect what marriage is about, which is a relationship between Christ and his church? Would you use your marriage to show other people the beauty of Christ? Because one day it will, be, it will end. The purpose will be fulfilled when the church is united with Christ at the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's what Revelation says. When we're standing before the throne room of God, we will not be saying, I wish I was married. We will be saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor, glory, power, wisdom, and wealth, and strength. And until that day, though, I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to serve her. And I pray that men and women here, you would do the same to your spouses as well. For the single, um, and I include those who are widowed, uh, those who are even here now are preparing for marriage. Um, in this church, we want to uphold marriage. We want to uphold it because that's what Christ did because it reflects the relationship between Christ and his church. But it doesn't mean um, that you're not included as well. I hope this passage would encourage you, inspire you, that marriage is not the be-all and end-all. It is a wonderful thing, and we will uphold it and honor it, but it is not the ultimate goal. Being in love is not the goal of marriage. Reflecting the covenant promise of God is the goal of marriage. And that's why we have to display it. That's why we have to honor it. That's why we have to defend it. But for you who maybe aren't married or preparing for marriage, I pray this would shift your minds a little bit. It's not the be-all and end-all. It will end. And in light of eternity, 
It's a little blip. And I pray that you would you not waste your singleness either. Use it for all that God has for you. Redeem it. Use your energies for the purpose of making Christ look great. And in the light of eternity, even if you don't get married in this life, you will not have any regrets. You will not have any regrets because you will behold the joy that is before you, which is Christ. And lastly, just to end and to close, let me just say that the the doctrine of the resurrection, what we believe about resurrection, is a doctrine, firstly, of hope. It is a doctrine of hope. By knowing what's going ahead of us, what is before us, we can choose to look back from that and inform how we live today. By knowing what's going before us, what is assured for us, that we can live now in the resurrection power, because that is what God has given us. We get to experience God's power in our lives right now, the assurance of faith, hope in the midst of suffering, whatever may pass. We have power to overcome sin. We have power to overcome our frailties and everything that would hold us back from holiness. This future hope allows us to live in light of what is achieved for us already in Christ. And I want us to feel that. I want us to really feel that and think about it this week. This all relies on God's faithfulness. This hope, this power, this authority all relies on a God who is faithful. If it relies on anything else, if it relies on politics, if it relies on uh, whether this coronavirus um, ends or doesn't end, if it relies on business or money, we will be sorely disappointed. But if it relies on a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, eternal, forever faithful, good, true, authoritative God who says, you are mine and I am yours. Just as he was faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is faithful to you and will redeem your life and use it. And I pray that would encourage you this morning. Would you all stand? I'm going to read a blessing over you. I want to just encourage you from Isaiah 11, just as we close. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God, and God will give it abundantly. And I want to pray uh, for us, uh, church. Uh, these are the, this is the prophecy of Isaiah over Jesus. But I want to say to you that if you are in Christ this morning, the same spirit that filled Jesus with authority, the same spirit that filled him with wisdom and counsel and understanding, is the same spirit that can fill you this morning and give you wisdom for this life. Would you receive these words as I speak them over you? Isaiah 11, verse 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon you. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And Lord, I pray for my friends this morning in this place that we would be people of wisdom. We would be people who have received understanding and counsel and might to live this life with the resurrection power that you've given us. Lord, where we're facing opposition, whether in our, maybe in our friendship groups or whatever, where we don't have the answers, God, would you give us 
a place where we fall at your feet and ask, Lord, for wisdom and understanding, but also ask, Lord, for love and compassion and mercy. And I pray, Lord, for anyone in this place here who does not know you as the resurrection power in their life, who does not know you as Lord and Savior. Today can be the day where you can ask Christ to come into your life and give you assurance, give you hope, a future, freedom from all your sins, freedom from all that you've done wrong. That is who Jesus is, and that's why he came, that you may have life and have life to the full, not to take anything away, but to add, to replace, to take over, and be your Lord and Savior. So if that is for you this morning, if you are seeking Christ, if you are seeking what this Christianity is all about, may I encourage you, come and speak to us afterwards. But you can pray this prayer this morning. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me for my sins. I'm sorry for what I've done. I trust that you died for me, but also that you rose to new life and that you will give me life today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.